Welcome back to episode 9 of the Pulsog podcast. My name is Jerome Devitt. This week we'll be thinking about the life and ideas of another one of our key thinkers, John Locke, who was born in 1632 and died in 1704. One of the things that I think that I and the students get most out of studying John Locke is that he is an excellent foil for our study of Thomas Hobbes. In other words, their ideas come into conflict in lots of interesting and often diametrically opposed ways. This, I think, helps students to place themselves somewhere on a spectrum rather than finding themselves having to fully agree or disagree with one of the two key thinkers that we tend to cover at the start of 50 or when we're doing power and decision-making. The second thing I think that's valuable about Locke is that his ideas have been, broadly speaking, so influential as to have students realise just how big the footprint of a philosopher who died over 300 years ago can be. I'll return to this idea later on in the in the episode when we look at the quote of the day. To help the students get their heads around John Locke, I sat down with Professor Graham Finlay of the School of Politics and International Relations in University College Dublin. Originally from Canada, Professor Finlay has a weekly slot on the Sean Moncrief show on News Talk called Tell Me Why, in which he takes listener questions and does a deep dive to explore some of the more interesting ways to address those questions. I'll include a link to a few of the episodes that are particularly relevant to our course in the show notes that you'll be able to find on www.pulsockpodcast.com. Since our last episode, I've been focusing on making a number of screencasts that are now available on both the website and our YouTube channel. I think I've done five so far, but we'll be adding more throughout the year. They touch on topics as broad-ranging as approaching the, hum- the children's rights essay, Uh, understanding Northern Ireland's political system, but I think most importantly, three explainer videos on some of the pitfalls and potentials for writing your citizenship project reports. They've been the most popular so far, and I recommend taking a quick look at them before you start drafting your own reports later on this year. I've also added a huge amount of revision material on key thinkers and key themes that you'll find in the Key Thinker Notes tab on the website. Professor Finlay was really generous with his time and helped me to see so many ways in which Locke links into the Pulsock course as a whole, so this episode is far longer than my usual half-hour interviews. I was going to make it into two separate episodes, but instead I'm leaving it as one episode, trusting you'll pause and come back when you get too tired. So what I'll do is I'll leave the time codes for each section in the program notes to help you navigate the episode yourself. Let's dive in. I started off by asking Professor Finlay about the relevant historical context that a modern student needs to understand in order for John Locke's ideas to make sense to us. Here's how he responded. The exciting thing about Locke, as with almost all the great thinkers up till about 1900, but certainly up till about 1850 or so, is that he lived at a time of incredible political ferment in which he was directly involved. And so he was a sort of by everybody's standards, a boring academic until he gets involved with this guy, Lord Shaftesbury, who goes from being sort of head of the government to being head of the opposition to the king and his party and eventually gets embroiled with the kind of politics which will get you killed. Uh, And so we need to understand Locke's quite radical claims in the context of someone who could be executed for having a manuscript which said this kind of thing, which he could have been, and he did. Uh, And 
which were as part of a, of a, of a struggle which was very, very intense. I mean, at a certain point, um, some of his uh, fellow thinkers on this subject were, were captured and executed for having seditious manuscripts just like the Second Treatise of Government, and Locke had to flee to the continent uh, to avoid the same fate. I continued by asking Professor Finlay to outline to us how Locke's ideas differed from what had gone before him, while wondering why a 21st century student should even care about those ideas. Well, one reason a 21st century student might care about Locke is it might actually basically be what that 21st century already thinks about a lot of these things. Um, On the other hand, you might disagree with Locke because you disagree with your fellow students about some of these things. What am I trying to say? Well, Locke makes a real innovation in terms of how we think about rights, but especially in terms of how we think about uh, the government and the social contract, if society is a contract um, between all of us and a government between all of us and so forth. Um, So prior to Locke, a lot of thinkers, and maybe the most famous of which, especially in the context of of this course or this this subject, um, is Hobbes, you know, a lot of them had been through some terrible political violence, religious wars in Europe, the English Civil War. And Hobbes's conclusion was that you need a sovereign, someone to overawe everybody so you don't have a civil war, because that's the worst. And uh, that's one conclusion to draw. That means that the contract in Hobbes is between all of us to give all our power to someone else who can then scare us into being good and not attacking each other. Uh, And that's not the contract which Locke uh, drew as a consequence from the English Civil War. Now, this may partly be because Hobbes was much older. He um, had lived through it as an adult and also had to flee um, and and became fairly close to Charles II, who was restored um, after after a brief period of military dictatorship. Um, Locke was in secondary school when Charles I, uh, the King of England, was executed uh, outside his school. He was able to leave, you know, it was a half day or something like that, to go see the king's head be cut off. Um, and uh, that obviously kind of makes an impression on you. But Locke, nevertheless, as an older man caught up in these political throes, comes up with the conclusion that, in fact, the social contract is between us, the people, individual people who are bearers of natural rights, to life, liberty, health, and property, um, and that's a big part of it. And to preserve those rights, we enter into or put ourselves under civil government, which is really a contract between the people and the ruler and the government. And that could be a king, that could be a group of people, that could be a parliament, but it's basically a deal between the people and the government. Many, many people, when they hear the social contract, they think, ah, it's a deal between all of us to live by the laws, which it is. But it's a deal between us and the government. So if the government stops doing what it's supposed to do, we can get ourselves a new government. Um, that is a radical innovation. Hobbes uh, is explicitly arguing the opposite. Um, Rousseau, another great social contract theorist, is also in some ways arguing uh, the opposite. He, um, he doesn't have this notion of popular sovereignty, which we associate with Locke. Uh, I mean, it, it's more complicated in Rousseau, and this isn't about Rousseau. So um, Locke uh, is it's a real innovation, and, and he brings in, as a result of this, the idea that if, if a government is acting tyrannically, 
if it's invading our natural rights uh, to life, liberty, and property, or in the words of the Declaration of Independence, which was very much um, inspired by Locke, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, then we can, in the last resort, rebel against it. There's a right to resistance, a right to rebellion, and that's part of our freedom as human beings, as bearers of rights. That's a very radical doctrine, and that's not something which people felt entirely happy about. I mean, it was described as a recipe for anarchy. It was uh, seen as um, an overthrow of all existing orders, Um, and Locke frames his account, again in this political context, as a criticism of the work of a guy called Sir Robert Filmer, who wrote a book called Patriarcha. Uh, And he was shoring up the divine right of kings as the literal property inheritors of Adam, and with it, Adam's dominion over not just the earth, but also all other human beings. Um, And if that's your rival uh, theory, that can seem bizarre to us. But at the time, Certainly, most kings thought of themselves that way, uh, and these were the guys you were, you were planning on cashiering. So if you see yourself as a member of, of a democratic uh, populace or, or population, if you uh, see yourself as a bearer of rights, a person who has their own rights, which are natural rights, which are, are not given to you by the laws of the government, by the government, um, and those shouldn't be interfered with, and that you should be able to resist if someone does try to violate your rights, then you might be thinking along the lines of Locke. But at the time, this was seen as very, very, very threatening, seditious, and that's probably why Locke never put his name to it, not while he was alive. Locke was obviously a very influential thinker in terms of the philosophical enlightenment, but I wanted to ask Professor Finlay how politically influential he was, both in terms of the political movements he inspired and with regards to how he shaped the ideas about how we think government should operate today. Politically, he inspired a tremendous number of movements. It wasn't clear the extent to which England fully adopted all of his views, even though a Bill of Rights was produced by the Glorious Revolution. But in the United States and in the colonies beforehand, there was a tremendous emphasis on this conception of the centrality of rights. And indeed, there were bills of rights, which are some of our earliest human rights documents. And again, in each of these, uh, rights were seen as a constraint upon government power, were seen as prior to government power, and the idea of government as the creature of and the servant even of the people and, of, and, and, and being there to promote their individual rights um, took a very, very powerful hold of the American imagination and, again, features in the Declaration of Independence. How did they get there? Basically, the story is there are inconveniences of the state of nature. Um, and the state of nature is, I mean, inconvenient, you know, is obviously much less harsh than nasty, brutish, and short in the war of every, every man against every man, right, the war of all against all, which we find in Hobbes. It's inconvenient. So what is that? Well, everyone has their rights and their duties in the state of nature. The problem is each one of us is the only enforcer of them. And so if you come and take my apples, the only person who's going to come and get them back is me, right? Now, I'm going to be outraged. You've violated your duties and and you've violated my rights at the same time. And so the big problem is people aren't good judges in their own case, we're, we're too caught up in our own case. We can't be dispassionate about it. Right? We can't 
figure things out. It's like, well, you know, maybe he was right to take those apples. You know, I've got too many apples. We don't do that. So that leads to instability as people either are unable to, you know, punish and the, the, the violator and the thief and, and get their apples back, right, or punish the thief too strongly. So what we do, the reason we go in together to set up a civil government, which is very much a contract between us and whoever is going to be our ruler. And again, it could be a king, right? But the king's job is to administer justice. And so very often the government is seen as, first and foremost, as a magistrate to hear both sides and give impartial decisions. These work a lot better if you do so on the basis of law. You're ruled by laws and not by men. So one of the chief sins of tyrannical government is to violate laws, to not act by law, but to act despotically and arbitrarily, right? And, and so this emphasis on government as primarily as enforcing the rule of law, which should, and this is a very important point, reflect the natural laws which God has laid down for us insofar as we can see what those are. And so it's not a legal positivist view, which is whatever laws have been promulgated by the appropriate measures we have around here, by the appropriate people, are law. But rather, laws should meet the natural law standard. They should live up to what they should be. And that's why we know if the government's not doing its job, because it's violating the natural laws. It's invading people's property. It's you know, killing people arbitrarily. It's violating their liberties by detaining them. It's you know, preventing their representatives from meeting things like that, all the things which they feared from a Catholic uh, James II and uh, the colonists of the United States of America accuse George III's government of, of, of perpetrating. So this idea of the state is primarily about the rule of law and primarily having a job to do, which we're looking out for, is a very powerful legacy. And it's one which is constantly in danger of being undermined. Um, there, there's a lot of rule of law programming in the development space. And Locke has been accused of being a proto-capitalist by, by placing this emphasis on the rule of law and on property and so forth. I think that's a little I mean, some of those criticisms which have come from the Marxist tradition are a little bit heavy-handed. But it's true. He's setting up a picture of human beings as concerned with property in a natural way who want their society simply to administer property. Right and our lives and, and things like that, and to protect us, that's fine too. Uh, but who can be cashiered if they fail to do their job? Now, there was this worry that this would lead to anarchy, that every time someone didn't like something, they would rebel. And that's why Locke says, look, ex the first setting up of societies has to be by explicit consent, express consent. I have to say, I submit for now right, to this government insofar as they will better protect me and my rights. Right? Now, none of us, unless you, I don't moved here and, uh, and, and you know, had to swear an oath or something like that, explicitly consented to be ruled by the laws of Irish society. But, uh, so Locke has this notion which has its issues called tacit consent. Right? So as you, if you continue to obey the laws and you use public roads and go around acting as if you consent to the laws, then that's good enough consent. But that consent can be withdrawn. He thinks it will only be withdrawn under the most extreme circumstances, that the people will suffer a huge amounts of abuses uh, before they rebel, because you don't rebel lightly, as we've all seen from civil wars. Um, nevertheless, there comes a point where the, the king or the government of any kind is acting like a tyrant, 
then people have the right to resistance, and the people shall be judge. Right? And to some extent, they're appealing to heaven uh, in terms of who's right. Right? God will, it is presumed, favor those who are in the right. Now, there are lots and lots of interesting questions to be asked about this. Uh, again, maybe a story which has really caused me to think is I once had a Burundian student, and some, uh, one of my colleagues was laying out this Lockean understanding of our rights and our relationship to our government. And there have been terrible, terrible genocides and civil wars in Burundi, uh, which have been, and currently it's a very challenging situation. Um, and he said, I think this idea of a resort to violence and the right of resistance as a matter of rights scares me a lot, right? Because he's seen civil war up close. And so I do try to bear this in mind. And this, I think, helps us recapture the sort of the stakes uh, which, which are involved in the 17th century if you're talking about the right to resistance and the radical nature of, of Locke's argument. Entangled terminology. Why did we have to re-record that? Because my dad accidentally deleted it. <laughs> Sorry. So... For our Untangling the Terminology section today, we're going to deal with two of the big isms that we'd associate with John Locke, liberalism and constitutionalism. Let's take liberalism first. Locke, because of his opposition to Hobbes's absolutism that we discussed in episode two, is often known as the father of liberalism, which basically means that he argued that laws are enacted to protect liberty or freedoms. That freedom, however, is not the ability to live totally unrestrained in the state of nature. As Locke himself said, quote, For who could be free when every other man's humour might domineer over him? Therefore, laws are needed to constrain others and enable freedom. As again, Locke himself argued, quote, Where there is no law, there is no freedom. I mean, how could you be free to own something if anybody stronger than you could just come along and take your stuff, right? Our second term is constitutionalism, and again, this is partly at least a response to absolutism. In its most basic form, constitutionalism can be summed up by Locke's desire that we should live under the control of, quote, the rule of laws, not the rule of men. He argued against taxation without representation, for example, without having a say in how your tax is spent. And that's an idea that heavily influenced the American Revolution, and which, in theory at least, you should vaguely remember from second-year junior cycle history. No man, or government, or woman for that matter, is above the law, and people who see their government acting tyrannically by breaking their own laws have the right to overthrow that government, because it can't function without the consent of the governed, the approval of the people who live under that government and the laws that it makes. I was a little bit confused about the difference between natural rights and human rights. So I asked Professor Finlay how indebted the modern notions of human rights are to the ideas put forward by John Locke. Well, I teach human rights. And one of the things about the international human rights system is although it's committed to all sorts of values, human rights are universal, they're interdependent, uh, and they're interrelated, uh, and, and they're in theory not hierarchical, they are... Uh, Nevertheless, they combine a lot of different insights from all over the world in terms of philosophies and attitudes to the world. And that can often make them uh, potentially unstable, or at least certainly to have some tensions within what we think of in terms of human rights. Now, 
John Locke's theory of, of natural rights uh, stems from, to start with, an overtly Christian viewpoint. One thing he could assume uh, on the part of all his listeners um, and readers uh, was that there is a God, and that God created human beings, and God created human beings in a certain kind of way. Now, this is, um, and, and accordingly, human beings are capable of figuring out what they need to do to carry out God's plan for them uh, and do it, right? They have both the, the reason which allows them to find out what the natural laws are for human beings um, and to live up to it. Now, many of us don't, which is why in the end we get civil government. But uh, this idea that human beings were created with a certain way, with certain purposes, uh, which give them the right to certain kinds of things as personally held rights, uh, is an extension of all this natural law talk, which theologians have been talking about for a couple hundred years by that point, uh, but makes it much more individual. Now, on the, in terms of human rights, remember, human rights are universal. They apply to everyone in the world, right? Whereas these natural rights, again, apply to everyone in the world. They may apply to men and women slightly differently. This is kind of tricky. But they apply to everyone in the world, and yet they're held as individual rights which are ultimately protected within one society or one civil society. And they're, you know, so which is why you get the sort of tension. I mean, maybe the easiest way to describe this tension in human rights is United States of America, um, at most, for most of its recent history, right, has, has been a leader in terms of human rights in some places and not so much of a leader in terms of human rights. But it has not always, in fact, it rarely conceived of human rights in terms of universal human rights, which are sort of binding on every state, binding on all of us, which we all have. Rather, it's often tended to think of universal human rights as American civil rights, as given to them in the Constitution and the founding documents of the United States of America, like the Declaration of Independence, uh, as... Uh, natural rights which we all have, which the U.S. has enshrined in its own domestic law and which it projects out to a world which needs the American message. And this even appears in some of the ways in which the U.S., to the extent that it does, uh, protects human rights around the world. Um, so that gives you some sense of, of what's partly different about, about John Locke's focus. It very much is... Uh, an individualist focus, uh, if you look at his state of nature, for example, we are all sort of fully possessed of our natural rights in, in his version of the state of nature. And we can have property in the state of nature. We can do all sorts of stuff in the state of nature uh, without needing some kind of government to, to over us at all. I mean, liberty for Locke, to some extent, just means not being under a government, no one, not being under anyone else's authority. Um, so... That picture animates an awful lot of the ways people think about rights, but it can often lead, and it's farther down the road, right, to a libertarian view, which is there's only individual rights and, and, and government, you know, is really hamstrung in terms of what it can do. So it's a crucial part of, of human rights in that people can claim them. I think that's an important part, which it's, Locke has given to our contemporary understandings of natural law and natural rights. But... It's not perhaps the whole story, and it's probably in tension with other aspects of the story.
It's time for Quote of the Day. I mentioned in the introduction that I'd come back to think about the huge influence of Locke's ideas in the Quote of the Day section, so here we are. The famous British literary theorist, critic and public intellectual, Terry Eagleton, has pointed out that there are two ways in which things can be hidden from us or difficult to see. And here's the quote. There are, he said, quote, two kinds of invisibility, one which arises from absence, the other from over-obtrusive presence. In other words, some things you can't see because they're just not there. But there are other things that you don't see because they're everywhere. We take them utterly for granted and never really think to fully investigate them. I think that in many ways this is what's happened with the ideas of John Locke, which he so eloquently articulated in the 1680s and 90s. We just take them for granted now. It reminds me of that quote from the American anthropologist Ralph Linton, who wrote in 1936 that, quote, the last thing a fish would ever notice would be water. This quote explains how we sometimes lack sociological imagination, because we fail to see how the institutions of civil society, like schools, government, the rules of the road, and now even perhaps social media, deeply impact our behaviours as individuals. It even reminds me of the famous Sherlock Holmes quote, that you quote, You do not see, Watson, his sidekick, because you do not observe. I think that John Locke helps students to see the second kind of invisibility, helps us to see the water in which we're swimming, and that he, in short, helps us to observe rather than just see the world around us. Private property is a big part of modern constitutional law, so I wanted to ask Professor Finlay how did John Locke view the idea of property, particularly that he gave it such a high status in his core rights, life, liberty and property? Well, that is a very controversial question, and yet this is one of Locke's fundamental contributions to uh, philosophy and political philosophy. Um, there's a lot of debate in the scholarly literature about what Locke was doing and what the effects of it were. And it's, it's really important that instead of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, he says life, liberty, and property. Right? So this is a discourse about property, to take the, a phrase from, from the secondary literature on Locke. He has a theory of how property can be justly acquired, which has been very, very influential. There are a lot of problems with these arguments, and yet we haven't got better ones. <laughs> so, so a lot of people are really attracted to this theory of property, but it has its problems. So property is something you can have in the state of nature. Property is one of those things which you can get rid of your government if it's oppressively taking it away from you, and that includes through oppressive taxes, which was the main issue which had led to the English Civil War. And so... He, it's one of his key, he was very proud of it as well. It was one of his key arguments about natural rights. So, God creates us. And I think it's really, really important that we, we start with this. God creates us, and we are in some sense, in fact, in, in every sense for Locke, his property. That's why we can't commit suicide, and we can't kill other people, because we're robbing from God, right? And you don't want to rob from God. So... We're God's property, so we can't do with ourselves whatever we want, and we can't do with other human beings with their natural rights, whatever we want. That's the most serious thing. That's why a government which invades those things is tyrannical and can be got rid of. 
However, God wants us, and this is a really good example of his reasoning, right? God wants us to live, right? And he, and accordingly, he has shown us how to live. He's, you know, he's made us the kind of creatures who need to go find some food somewhere, right? And there's got to be a way of taking it out of the common. Everyone agrees that the whole world was given to human beings in common. That's got a biblical basis as well. So there's got to be some way I can take an apple off a tree and make it mine. Right? If I had to go around asking everyone permission for to take this apple, I'd starve. And so that's, he says, you know, is making something your property. It belongs properly to you. Now, we think of property very much in terms of stuff these days. In, in Locke's, and I think there's convincing arguments for that. For Locke, it really is an extension of yourself in some ways. By, and, he, and it's through labor. By mixing our labor with that apple, and it's just the labor of pulling it off a tree. But, you know, you can think of something more laborious, like digging potatoes, right? If you dig potatoes, you know, that's labor, right? Potatoes in the ground aren't worth anything, right? But dug up, they're potatoes you can eat. So by mixing our labor with it, that makes us ours, right? Um, and indeed, this labor theory of value has a long life. Marx was a, has a labor very different but a labor theory of value. He believed the value of something was entirely due to the labor which was put into it. That's another conversation as well. Anyway, so, and that's something we can all do. And yet there are limits to what we can do. God did not provide us with the world uh, so that we would waste it. So suppose I pick all the apples off the tree, far more than I can eat, and they rot. Well, I've really, I've committed a sin. I've also, you know, Fail to uphold my obligations under rights. And it's really important to note, as with all talk about rights and, and human rights, um, rights also involve duties. And so I have a duty not to waste it. Right? Now, it, this also applies to land. In the beginning, all the world was like America, which in uh, colonialist thought, of which Locke uh, is an interesting example, and that's another whole discussion, which is analogous to the gender one. Um, America was largely empty. Sure, there were some people in it, uh, but they weren't using it very well, right? So in the beginning, there weren't so many human beings, and they'd go around and they'd start farming. And that was grand because you, as you, can, you can do that. You can cordon off some land and start farming it because that's a lot more efficient than hunting and gathering uh, as long as you leave enough and as good for others to come and do the same thing, right? Now, as you will have noticed, we don't live in that world anymore you know, where everything seems to be owned by somebody, uh, now, there's some, probably some parts where you, you could... But everything in the world seems to be owned by somebody now. Uh, so how do we get there? Well, Locke says that comes down to... And this could all take place in the state of nature, remember. Uh, at some point, people start to value things other than food. Uh, and, you know, they might like this shiny object over here, which is gold, right? Or they might like this sparkly rock, which is a diamond, or something like that, or shells, right? You know, shells have been used as money in various places. You know, if I say, look, I, I have this gold, but I could use a couple of apples. If I give you this gold for these apples, you know, would you, would you give me some apples? And, and, I, and if you say, yes, here, have some apples, and I'll take that shiny gold, right? That doesn't violate anybody's rights because we have to all agree to this. We have to consent. Consent is a very, very important concept for Locke. So we all consent to the use of money because at any moment you could say, no, I'm going to stop taking that gold stuff. I've got too much gold. Uh, and, uh, and just demand apples all the time. You know, I'm just living on apples, which would be grim, actually, at a certain point. But, uh, you know, it's, 
so so there's no nobody's rights were violated by this ex- agreeing to exchange uh, apples for gold, and that way money comes to be. Um, and uh, the thing about money is it doesn't go bad. Uh, and that's why we don't tend to use apples as money. We tend to use stuff which doesn't go bad as money. Uh, again, there's a fascinating history of all the things which have been used as money, uh, but that's another time, I suppose. Um, anyway, uh, and so, I mean, it's an important insight into how money works. And in fact, Locke was kind of engaged with economics to, to no small degree, uh, which is that it's the consent and not the actual nature of the substance of gold, which in the 17th century wasn't nearly as useful as you know, steel or iron, right? Um, anyway, he, so, so that, that consent makes it okay, except. Now, a lot of people out there, again, I sometimes, you know, all this talk about property uh, can lead you very, very quickly to a sort of libertarian point of view, which is like my rights to property through what is often called self-ownership. And again, it's more complicated for Locke than it would be for a later theorist like Nozick, uh, who's also on the, on the syllabus. Uh, this idea of self-ownership, right, can be taken to extremes where it's like I have an absolute right to my property, right? Even if I've acquired it through this money thing. Uh, and, uh, and accordingly, I got my property. I'm going to use it as I, I wish. If you've got your property, if you lose your money or lose your property, if you, uh, for whatever reason, don't have property, maybe it's because we're now at a time where the whole world is being turned into different parcels of land, uh, it's not my problem, right? That's, uh, it's, you know, that you don't have stuff is not, doesn't impose duties on me, right? That's not the case for Locke. Locke sees the use of someone's poverty and starvation as a way of controlling them as akin to the kind of violation of your duties uh, that murder or enslavement would, would involve. And, and so he has a passage in the first treatise, which doesn't always get noticed, that if you use someone's deprivation to make them do your bidding, and accordingly, don't treat them like a free person who's you know, in charge of their own life and needs these things as, by God's law, right, needs to feed themselves. It's just like holding a dagger to their throat and offering them death or slavery. Right? So there are limits to, uh, even in this consensual money world, Right again, possibly prior to the existence of society and government, to how you use the property you have mixed your labor with. In this week's student strike back, I wanted to give the students an opportunity to reflect back on what they'd learned about John Locke. So I started by asking Amy whether there were any ideas in Locke that she found particularly interesting, engaging, or even problematic. I really liked John Locke's idea of religious toleration because I think it's very forward-thinking and progressive of the time. I really like his theory about when you disallow people their diversity and religious opinion that it actually leads to more disorder, and I think that's kind of still a problem that we even have in today's society. I kind of have to disagree a bit with his property theory when he states that whatever you mix your labour with is your own. Well, in theory, it sounds okay. It does in a sense, justify um, a lot of colonialism and, say, expansion into America. And also, I feel like his ideas are quite contradictory and ironic when he's arguing that everybody deserves the right to life, liberty and property, but yet he himself owns stocks in the slave market. It kind of undermines his whole principle. 
I then went on to ask Emma whether she thought John Locke had had a significant footprint on the Irish Constitution. Yeah, definitely. So in the Irish Constitution, especially especially when it involves property rights, it's kind of evident that John Locke has influenced it greatly. For example, in Article 40.32, it says that the law will always defend like the rights of every citizen, including its property rights, which it very much links in with John Locke's ideals, especially natural law, that every man has the right to uh, life, liberty, and property. And um, John Locke said that every... So the land with which I mix my labor is my own, so long as there is enough that is good for others, which does make sense because if you put a lot of effort into land and then it's not your own, that's kind of more or less slavery in my, in my context. I finished off by asking Sinead a really tricky question, whether she could find a specific case that illustrated some of Locke's ideas in modern Ireland. Through property right, we can see it in the Thomas Reed case, for example. So when Thomas Reed had a CPO issued against him to give some of his land to the company Intel so they could build a new second to their kind of base, he sued the Irish government, I believe, saying that it was unfair of them to take away his land for a company when it wasn't actually benefiting the common good of the people. And you can see that, like, the idea of John Locke in that, like, the first half of his quote, um, that with which I mix my labor is my own. But then, on the other hand, you can see, you can say, oh, people would have been employed in that area and that would have been common good because that would have boosted the economy in the area and so on and so forth. And you can see that in the second half of his quote. So you can definitely see a lot of John Locke in that situation. And then with constitutionalism, it's a lot of smaller, but it's kind of like the idea that because we have not just one person in government, it's a group of people. If we're unhappy with the government, we can change it however we, we wish. So that's definitely a kind of an idea of the consent of the governed. Sinead got most, but not all, of the details of the Thomas Reed case right there. So what I'll do is I'll include details of the case study that we used in our own class in the revision notes that I'll put available for you up on the website to download. Anyway, an interesting set of reflections from the students there. I think you'll agree, and hopefully some ideas there that we'll be able to come back to in the future. Religious toleration is yet another key aspect of Locke's writing. I asked Professor Finlay to explain the idea to us and then to put it into context so we can understand it better. Locke and many other writers were sort of moving out of the religious wars of the 17th century where people in Europe and in individual countries were killing each other over religious differences. And the idea that we could be, I could be Anglican and you could be a dissenting Protestant, you could be a Presbyterian or something like that, uh, or I could be Catholic and you could be Protestant or a Lutheran, and that's okay, right, uh, was very, very difficult for people to accept. Uh, and indeed, many wars were fought between states and within states to make people do the right thing. And the idea somehow being that it was intolerable to have these people practicing practices which were inimical to their soul and by extension of that society. It would be bad for society for us to, to, to disagree about these things. And a lot of these things were what Locke calls indifferent things, matters indifferent. Not is there a God and a future state, you know, heaven or immortality of, of the soul of some sort, but, you know, 
should you wear a surplice at mass, right? Or should you uh, pray in a certain way? Should you have stained glasses, right? Should you stained glass? Should you celebrate communion with bread, you know, uh, and things like that, uh, and wine? Uh, or how you, what you, how you should describe the bread and wine, you know? Um, and it took a lot of violence for people to get, become, and this is a stock story. I think it's a bit of an exaggeration. People got tired after killing each other for a few decades over this, and they had to think of a new way to be together, right? Inside states and outside states. Now, much is placed on emphasis is placed on the Westphalian Treaty of Westphalia, which came up with the the slogan. Now, I, I can always get you know, quis uh, regio eus religio yeah. or religio. See, my Latin is terrible, <laughs> as you all know uh, now. Uh, which is, you know, whoever's the king gets to determine the religion, I paraphrase. Uh, but which is one solution. It means everyone here is going to be Lutheran. Everyone here is going to be Catholic. Well, it's a beat, it beats war, right? However, it's not great if you have different views within those states. Right? So toleration is the view that although there may be an official state religion, as there still is in the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland, you know, uh, and... You know, it really believes that it's got the list of how you should behave and so forth. You can let some other people, and that's you have to figure out why and how, believe other things and practice other things um, because they don't threaten the state in some particular way. Uh, and they don't threaten your salvation in any particular way. And so there's lots and lots of different theorists in the history of toleration who've come up with different answers about how you should live this way. Locke's has been a very, very compelling one. Um, to start with, Locke himself was in need of toleration. There's lots of evidence that he didn't believe in the Trinity, which would have gotten him in serious trouble because belief in the Trinity was seen as sort of essential to a stable society. And anybody who, who believed that was believed otherwise was a heretic. Um, now, he argues that, and this is a very Protestant way of thinking things, um, we all are trying, for the most part, to uh, gain salvation um, as best we can. But because of these limitations in our ability to know things, we can make different, have different conclusions from the way we live. Uh, and so we can come to different conclusions uh, and that's okay as long as they don't threaten society in some particular way. And so when it comes to what you wear at mass or services or whatever, you know, that's really not important. <laughs> uh, and further, you know, even if those beliefs are, you know, you really think they're false and they're going to endanger your soul, you're not going to be able to compel someone to change their beliefs by the sword, right? You can maybe force them through torture, to say they believe it, but you can't change people's beliefs, again, because of this responsibility we have to think things through for ourselves. We're just going to do it. We may, under the lash, say we believe in the Trinity, but deep down we don't. And, uh, and so that's wrong. I mean, why are you doing this to people when it doesn't work uh, and when it involves sort of unnecessary violence towards someone uh, where the, there's no threat to the state or you coming from them believing in something other than you believe. There are certain groups he deliberately excludes from toleration. And those are Catholics, 
which is not a coincidence, right? But he's got a justification for it, and it's one which has a certain history. Milton had the same view, which is Catholics owe allegiance to a foreign power, the Pope. The other people you exclude from toleration are atheists. You know, why? Well, atheists can't be trusted. They, you know, a lot of, you know, the rule of law, especially in a time when, you know, you don't have surveillance systems like we have now, involves people swearing oaths in court, out of court, you know, in testimony and so forth for contracts and things like that. Atheists don't fear hellfire, so they'll swear away to anything, right? And so they can't be trusted, and that undermines the legal system and, and sort of civil society. So obviously this isn't how we think of toleration today. Nevertheless, it's the beginning of a particular understanding of what our society should be like, and I still think there is a lot to learn from us. One is you can't, I mean, it's, it involves the view, which is controversial, that you can't go around indoctrinating people particularly successfully. And so you should instead have a lively conversation or at least let other people live their lives according to their own lights. Um, this may be unstable. And one of the interesting things uh, about this particular approach to toleration, which we call classical toleration, is it allows you to go around harassing people in their own interests. You just don't attack them, right, or threaten them with any kind of sanction. There is this aspect to Locke's toleration and classical toleration that you are a disgusting pervert whose actions and beliefs go against God and nature. However, for high-minded reasons of my own, I choose not to smite you, right? Whereas a neutral approach suggests, like, as long as we can all get along and it doesn't affect crucial beliefs in our society, then we'll forget what those are. You know, people can believe in this flying spaghetti monster if they like. What's it to me? And then further is this notion of active toleration where we sort of should reach out and really understand people and support them in their identities if they're a minority which is marginalized by the dominant, even if it's a neutral approach, dominant approach. Now, anybody listening to this and assuming it's not a thousand years from now where we don't have debates about free speech and identity politics anymore, uh, will recognize that this might help us start to think about how we should treat other people we disagree with? Right? Should we have more conversations, which can often get quite heated? Right? Should we just let people do their thing? You know, to what extent uh, should we feel that our grasp of what's really true and right is correct? Or do we think we can learn from someone who's reasoned differently? Uh, and what protections should we have on freedom of speech and assembly and participation, uh, which stem from that? Now, I'm not going to answer these questions, and in fact, the contemporary theorists of toleration haven't necessarily either, but Locke definitely is one of those thinkers who starts this ball rolling. It's worth bearing in mind that this ball that John Locke starts rolling is the same ball that's picked up by Kwame Anthony Appiah, another one of our key thinkers, except Appiah is going to take those ideas and develop them in his own way so that he can talk more cogently about cosmopolitanism. Keep an eye out for it later on in the course. John Locke also had a lot to say about education, so I asked Professor Finlay to outline what some of those ideas were, and also perhaps a little cheekily, to wonder what John Locke would have made of the Leaving Cert. Well, that's a, that's a really good question as well. Locke's, what, Locke was a really influential educational theorist, and he, he's not famous for that now. Um, and what he... It's one of the places where you can sort of point to... I think we'll probably talk about Locke and gender in a little while, but where, where he was open to the education of both 
boys and girls uh, in, in a system which he sort of came up with. But for the most part, his emphasis was on virtues. Um, and so the flip side of us all being individuals who, who can live without society is he nevertheless knew from a background of terrible political violence that we need to create a civil society in which people allow each other to go their own ways, right, to, to live by their own lights as much as possible, that people don't attack each other, they, they don't violate each other's rights. And his proposals for education encourage people to have those kinds of virtues, you know, uh, courage, principles, not harming other people, honesty, things like that. Uh, and also to conduct their understanding rightly. One of his, his well-known educational writings is on the conduct of the understanding. And the idea, and this is, this is part and parcel of Locke's political philosophy. Locke has a particular view of the world, which I think many of you may share, which is that he was an empiricist. You know, everything we know comes to us through the senses. Um, and we can be mistaken about what comes through the senses. That's a limited amount of information. It's not that there are such universal rules of nature that no one could fail to bump into them, as it were. We have to learn about nature. We have to learn about the world through our senses and figure it out for ourselves. That suggests that we should be somewhat modest about our beliefs about how much we can know. Uh, that suggests that we should be careful in terms of how we conduct our understanding, careful about how we put together our uh, beliefs. Uh, and in fact, he's got a kind of controversial position in his uh, essay concerning human understanding, which was the one book he put his name on, uh, uh, where he sees us as partly responsible for our beliefs. So that, you know, there are, if we believe things which are obviously false, right, or seem to be false, right? That's sort of our fault because we take an active role in, in figuring out how to put these empirical experiences, sense data together. It's on us to some extent. Uh, and that uh, is part of, that's a big part of his education. And so we're active learners. You might put it that way. We are actively trying to construct our beliefs. Um, accordingly, we should be tolerant of other people because they're constructing their beliefs too, and they're doing hopefully their best sincerely. And you know, who are we're not going to come down on them a ton of bricks if they come to different conclusions than we do about certain things. Uh, but also, he, he wouldn't see education as principally a matter of rote learning. So, to the extent, and I'll leave it to our listeners to decide, the leaving cert is the product of, or is, is composed of rote learning. He would have been worried about that. He had, like many, many other theorists of education, plenty of room for facts and so forth. But the crucials of education is becoming a thinking, critical person and not just simply, you know, downloading things into some, you know, 17th century memory bank. Right? He had the idea that we were blank slates. And that is an expression of his particular view compared to the people who, as I was sort of trying to allude to before, people like Descartes or who thought that. We're actually highly programmed uh, beings where the principles uh, which make up our, our, our basically understanding of the world and of God's plans for us are written in our hearts or something like that, right? Are hardwired into us. Uh, whereas uh, Locke thought that we, we're, we, we, we had to learn most of this stuff. 
I went on to ask Professor Finlay if there were any gender-related issues that we should be aware of when dealing with John Locke, beyond just the fact that he was writing 300 years ago and it was a very different time then. It's really good to raise the question of gender for any particular theorist you're thinking about. Why? Well, it's, it's all too easy to assume that because he didn't really talk about it as a main course or main way that he's either a terrible sexist, right, um, and he just assumed men were superior and so forth. And he did, right? But, well, sort of. Um, or that it's unproblematic and, right, you know, that, that, you know, not everything has to be about gender, right? So if we think about Locke, now Locke never married, but he did have a long philosophical sort of... Uh, conversation with uh, a neglected because female philosopher uh, called Damaris Masham, uh, who was one of his great friends. More to the point, though, he has been cascaded as a sexist because there's one notorious passage in the second treatise about how if there is going to be someone who's in charge, it should be the man because they're more able, abler and stronger, uh, which um, is often a crap way of determining who should be in charge uh, in the household or in society. Um, now, he wasn't proposing votes for women, although he wasn't entirely clear. He was proposing votes for all, all men. One of the things we always have to remind ourselves is that the idea of sort of you know, widespread uh, suffrage uh, is a very, very, I mean, universal suffrage is a very recent, recent conception. It would never have occurred to Locke to let sort of day laborers vote uh, you know, for the parliament or something like that. I think it's fair to say. You know, there is a feminist aspect to Locke. Again, as we said before, or I said before, girls were supposed to receive a similar education to boys. Now, that's not always the case in the history of education, including for people like Rousseau, who are much more famous as theorists of education. Uh, and his whole two treatises are a reaction to uh, a book called Patriarcha, right? And uh, that's patriarchy, right? Uh, and, and so much of the first treatise, which people rarely read, sadly, um, is a, and the whole thing is an attack on patriarchy, and much of it is an argument that not just Adam controlled the world, right, but Adam and Eve were inherited the world. And so uh, he points out that now, obviously, the, the laws surrounding women's access to property have been, in, in Great Britain were absolutely massively unfair and unequal until the very late 19th century and beyond. So Locke, is, as part of his argument against Filmer's patriarchy, is suggesting that women also can inherit. Women also have a role in power. Women are also human beings with capabilities of, of, of leadership, with rights. Um, and that is potentially radical. Now, he's not asking for, I mean, as this treatise about abler and stronger suggests, he's not saying try to overturn all the gender-based institutions of, of his time. He does seem to assume, as people did in social contract theory, at least until the 1970s, uh, that uh, what we're talking about are heads of households, right, uh, which are assumed to be the man. But there is this sense that women are human beings just like men are and, and also have rights uh, as, as human beings, endowed upon them by their creator. Again, I keep lapsing to the language of the Declaration of Independence, but they, uh, there's a, there's, this is an important sort of opportunity for, I think, women to start to assert their uh, natural rights and, and eventually their human rights and their civil rights. And while that's not what he was on about, 
uh, at the same time, it's a wedge. And, and when this language of natural rights comes out again in a, in a Christian context with people like Mary Wollstonecraft, you know, that tradition is there in the English tradition. Now, I know that this is a much longer episode than normal, so I asked Professor Finlay to sum up what he thought the three most important takeaways for students from John Locke would be. Here are his suggestions. I'm not telling any of you to believe any of this stuff or that you should believe any of this stuff, but they're very useful tools for thinking of, and they would be rights, I, the idea that individuals are ultimately the bearers of rights, um, the components of our, our political community. Uh, I think it would be the idea of, I mean, again, we have to, and, and the government which comes with that, the idea that government works for us and that we can get rid of the government and change our political structures if it's not working out for us, collectively. And the second one has to be property. Again, he was very proud of it. And it really is, in many ways, I think, the way people relate to their stuff. I work for this. It's mine. You know, the default is, what right do you have to my stuff? Right? And that is a very powerful thing, which, again, is powerful in politics, but it's really powerful when it's your stuff. <laughs> and then the third thing is toleration, the idea that we should be modest in our estimation of our own ability to figure out what the truth is and that we shouldn't immediately move to punish and sanction people we disagree with. Those are three powerful concepts which have been debated and argued over in the ensuing centuries, and Locke will appear in any of those conversations. So there you have it. I won't distort Professor Finlay's words or Locke's ideas with any more editorial comment other than to offer him my sincerest thanks for taking the time to help us both here and with his generous and insightful presentations to the Politics and Society Teachers Association, which really helped to steer us right in the early days of the subject. I and my teaching comrades are eternally grateful to him for that. If, like me, you found the period of COVID-19-related lockdown, yeah, pun intended, and other restrictions really challenging, I hope that Pulsock has given you some chance to process it in a more useful way. The ideas in the course certainly helped me to think in a more articulate way about how the powers of the state over our daily lives work, in a way that I think Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan would recognise. But I also saw how the perspectives of multiple key thinkers also helped me to see this unusual period in all of our lives. So I put together a provisional Pulsock COVID-19 key thinker reading list of short, insightful articles and put it up on the website, and I'll link it in the episode notes for you. If nothing else, I hope that they'll remind you that even when you're stuck at home or doing a Zoom class or working on Google Classroom or whatever it happens to be, that you're not apart from society. You're a part of society. See you next time.